This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. I'm M.L. Clark. During my last year in Kitchener-Waterloo, Ontario, I paid a lot of attention to grains, pseudo-cereals, and legumes. I was trying to save up as much money as I could before moving to Colombia, so I lived on rice, eggs, lentils, peanut butter, the occasional bag of reduced-for-discount apples, and that most glorious of flavor binders, a big old bottle of sriracha hot sauce, something we'll probably talk about in another episode because, boy, do I miss the spicy stuff. Amusingly, though, when I mentioned to friends and acquaintances what I was doing, many were super eager to tell me to add quinoa to the mix. Quinoa, after all, was a superfood. Quinoa was packed with protein, fiber, and a host of essential nutrients. I had to be fairly delicate when I pointed out that it was also expensive in contrast to the bulk foods I was buying, and as such, not useful for my savings goals, which were in direct contrast with wanting to eat healthily or fully eco-consciously. In the reactions of my friends and acquaintances, a sort of confused and awkward silence while they processed a life where buying quinoa might not be feasible, some sense of the different class strata we moved within became clear. Even though I was white, even though I was painfully overeducated, I was also someone who had always had to look carefully at the price point between basic pantry staples, which of course affected my relationship to the quinoa trend as it was rising. When it comes to the story of quinoa the superfood though, I'm by no means the only person who is struck by the sudden popularity of this pseudo-cereal, by which I mean this seed that looks like and is treated by consumers like a grain, or by how our highly performative Western culture, which is forever latching on to new diets and notions of global consciousness, grappled with contrapuntal news stories about the product's social and environmental impacts. Was quinoa really as good for you as everyone claimed, or was its rise simply part of a culture's general ignorance around whether everyone should be reaching for gluten-free products just because some people had sensitivities and allergies? And even if quinoa was good for you, was it also as good for its producers as booming sales might suggest? Was it good for the world? In episode two, we looked at the immense potential for improving human agency through one everyday object, the sidewalk. And in episode three, we considered some of the deceptive notions of personal agency in the mental wellness industry. Today though, we're going to look at both an object and an industry that perfectly embody our struggle to keep up with the newest and best intel about how to optimize human agency. After all, it's that mental flip that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Chop Talk, and today we're serving up the dissonant histories, curious semiotics, and humanist concerns around the site of a decade's worth of well-intentioned Western discourse, the quinoa market.
We're usually well into an episode before I point out that human beings are coherent actors, by which I mean that there are always robust contextual reasons for why we act even in completely irrational ways. But since I suspect that most listeners already remember parts of the great quinoa debate, it's probably better to start with that cautionary note instead. So just keep in mind that the thrust of this piece is not to say, look how ridiculously people acted, swinging from one trending opinion to another overnight. Rather, it's to highlight how eager so many of us are to hold the right opinion, to do the right thing, even if our desires to be righteous always have some measure of aspirational class status behind them. We want to do better, we really do, only can someone just tell us what better really is? And while trying to do the right thing, by whatever metric of rightness is in vogue today, diet and nutrition have been especially stressful talking points. Average body mass in the United States and Canada soared in the 1990s, which sparked a huge debate about the culprit. Was it our increasing caloric consumption? Was it the quality of calories? Was it the quality of calories being consumed? Even though many were quick to blame the individual for choosing fast food and other products packed with preservatives, we also know that dietary health is systemic. In other words, humans of recent decades didn't all of a sudden become poor problem solvers. Something about the problem we were trying to solve and the choices offered up to solve it had changed. We were becoming more sedentary due to our shifting job categories, for instance, from an industrial to a service-oriented, increasingly low-wage white-collar workforce, and we were spending more time in cardiovascular death trap commutes to get to those jobs in the first place. The rhythms of our working lives no longer favored having the time to make or sit down for a proper home-cooked meal, and in urban environments especially, fitness had become an expensive and performative enterprise. Still, we were trying. Diet industries boomed alongside all our anxieties about weight, precisely because we wanted to do better by ourselves and our loved ones. If gaining so much body mass was atypical in contrast to most of our species' history, and if it was at all attached to the possibility of secondary health and mobility issues, we were eager to find an answer. Just give us an answer. So. By the time the quinoa debate came along, we had already been primed to follow new labels in the hope that this next dietary trend would be the one that finally got us back on track. Never mind that the low-fat movement had led to many of us buying foods with far more sugar than we needed. Never mind that vegan and organic did not intrinsically mean low-calorie or nutritious. Never mind that we had gone through waves of butter being bad for us and eggs, and fish. When awareness of a single dietary restriction, celiac disease, and related gluten sensitivities rose in public consciousness, vast swaths of the population were so ready to consider that gluten-free intrinsically meant healthier for us all. And well, quinoa the superfood is both gluten-free and rich in nutrients. It has all 10 of the essential amino acids necessary for human diets. It's high in fiber, and its protein can replace animal protein. 
in the middle of an intense global discourse about our need to wean ourselves off meat entirely for environmental reasons as much as for the improvement of personal health, of course, quinoa was going to change our world. And yet, despite claims that this pseudo-cereal, which is closer genetically to the spinach, beet, and chard family, could solve world hunger, it was instead being exported primarily to serve the diets of the elite in North America and Europe. And exported from where? From the Andean Mountains, one of the few environments in which quinoa crops could thrive. From Bolivia, primarily, and Peru and Ecuador. In South America, this peasant crop retains a significant role in indigenous diets. When the UN declared 2013 to be the International Year of Quinoa in response to a surge of Western interest in the crop starting in the mid-2000s, the international organization was paying tribute to a new economy that had already provoked serious regional concerns. The presence of an indigenous crop, after all, raised questions about the stewardship of traditional methods and knowledge, not least of which included an adherence to mixed crop and rotational crop farming. Could these practices be retained with the world clamoring for local communities to dedicate themselves to one cash crop over all others? And what crops would the locals reserve for themselves if they knew that their highest quality quinoa would sell handsomely abroad? Would this superfood really feed the world or simply guarantee that the most impoverished parts of the world were even more cut off from high nutrient food supplies? Colombia is also found along the Andes, and not too far from the city I call home, one enters the Cafetero, a loose triangle of rich farmlands on rolling, verdant hillsides where coffee beans and other luxury crops are cultivated in traditional campesino, that is to say rural, cultures, to which tourists are also routinely drawn on account of the brightly colored homes, the sweet, rustic living, and the sheer craft involved in cultivating these popular Western goods. For those old enough to remember coffee commercials from the 1980s and 90s, you probably remember the gentle smile and thick sweeping mustache of an older man in a broad-rimmed hat with a poncho oruana, a relative of the poncho, offering a cup of coffee to someone in a North American kitchen or supermarket, his loyal steed carrying the bags of beans behind him before he disappears. That's Juan Valdez. And that was Colombian coffee as the rest of the world best knew it when I was growing up. And so when North Americans ask about life in Medellin, many assume I must be swimming in high quality coffee, a hundred Juan Valdezes wandering the streets outside my apartment. But ironically, for those same decades when Juan Valdez was a staple for coffee commercials in North America, Colombians were themselves rarely in a position to enjoy those coffee beans, for the same reason that in Bolivia many farm families turned to breads and pastas, or else used only the less lucrative parts of their quinoa crops for sustenance. 
In other words, most luxury coffee varietals in Colombia are marked for export, or at least for regions with lots of tourists. Even in recent years, as a local coffee company called Tostao has finally made urban inroads, most local Colombians still drink little cups of coarse black coffee, a basic tinto, and not much of it compared to North Americans. Starbucks and Timmy's addictions are baffling to many here, but again only because of availability due to export. You'll absolutely see folks instead open a giant bottle of caffeinated soda because hey, soda's cheap anywhere. Humans are humans after all, wherever we might roam and call home. And we all need our fix. Between 2005 and 2013, Bolivia and Peru quinoa exports grew sevenfold, reaching price points 600% over the original, as Estadounidenses in particular latched on to the health food market's latest obsession. In that same time frame, though, drastic changes to Bolivian farming culture also reshaped the local landscape. Like many countries with farmland, over the past few generations, Bolivia had been witnessing a rapid urbanization of the young. But with the promise of quinoa fortunes due to this international phenomenon, that trend was reversing. City slickers and industrious whippersnappers were returning to the fields of their ancestors. And yet, the re-peasantization of Bolivia's rural region had its downsides, especially as newcomers proved more interested in maximizing crop yields and foreign profits instead of maintaining traditional crop rotations, one year of quinoa that is, and the next potatoes or wheat, or in planting companion crops like fava beans to maintain soil health. Amid all this international acclaim over quinoa, mass farming, with all its negative impacts on sustainability and crop quality, had found its local foothold. But was that the whole story? The plight of the Bolivians, and to some extent the Peruvians, was certainly a major site of journalistic discourse in 2013, when a range of major Western newspapers began arguing that a mass migration to non-meat alternatives might actually have a range of adverse societal and environmental impacts. One of The Guardian's 2013 op-ed articles was perhaps the most provocative. It was titled, Can Vegans Stomach the Unpalatable Truth About Quinoa? and its commentary hinged in part on drawing connections between the current quinoa trend and the long-standing soy market, two significant attempts to wean the world off meat consumption that seemed to be yielding problems of their own. It bears noting, though, that there was by no means consensus on either of these issues, and plenty of reason to think that adverse impacts from soy and quinoa farming might just be transitional growing pains. After all, soy production not only serves the vegetarian market, but also the massive cattle industry, 
which raises the question of whether soy farming would still be so damaging in a world without mass market meat production. Likewise, quinoa's economic legacy also requires nuance. In Peru's general population, where quinoa had not been as much of a dietary staple to begin with, and where there had already been interest in pesticide and chemical processes that would optimize crop yields and reduce losses, a 2016 working paper for Towson University reported that Peruvian consumers did not see appreciable differences in local access to and consumption of quinoa, even during peak market mania. And yet, what was the greater benefit of all those dizzying market changes in the long run? The UN's International Year of Quinoa, which the Bolivian government itself had requested, ultimately came with its own adverse consequences, because the UN used this platform to encourage an expansion of quinoa farming all the world over, and the world had answered. China, India, Nepal, Canada, and the US especially got in on the quinoa game with their own mass farming practices. By early 2014, the staggering windfall of quinoa pricing, which Bolivia and Peru had been banking on continuing, began to subside to reflect the product's increase in worldwide accessibility. Predictable cascade effects followed. To stay competitive, South American quinoa producers have thrown themselves into a further abandonment of traditional practices, reducing their cultivation range to zero in on those few strains that do best in international markets. International biodiversity experts, in turn, have had to try to find ways to cash incentivize local farmers to continue cultivating endangered varietals at all, and not just for the sake of tradition, but for everyone's long-term health because when the world reduces its crop varieties, it puts the food chain at greater risk from collapsing with a single change in the ecosystem, a new bug or climate condition that the only species we've cultivated prove unable to withstand. But enough from me on these big and wonderful crop and social science topics when there's already so much excellent research and reporting that deserves to be experienced firsthand. NPR's Food for Thought series produced a solid report on some of these complex pluses and minuses in 2016 as a more immediate retrospective in the wake of the major quinoa boom. Jeremy Cherfess's article is called Your Quinoa Habit Really Did Help Peru's Poor, But There's Trouble Ahead. So you know what you're getting into from the start. Here are four others. Emma McDonald's 2018 article, The Quinoa Boom Goes Bust in the Andes, published in the NACLA Report on the Americas, also reflects on the media and market realities surrounding the crop industry during its peak and serves as a good two-year follow-up to Cherfis's piece. For something a bit more technical, though, I recommend Tanya M. Kersen's 2015 academic article, Food Sovereignty and the Quinoa Boom, Challenges to Sustainable Repeasantization in the Southern Altiplano of Bolivia, which was first published in Third World Quarterly and is now available on foodfirst.com which was first published in Third World Quarterly and is now available on foodfirst.org. 
It explores internal migratory pressures and how indigenous farming economies were generally reshaped by the international quinoa market. In the realm of podcasts, Elizabeth Crawford's Soup to Nuts episode, Quinoa's rise to superfood superstar status and the challenges it must address lives up to its title in grappling with next steps for food now considered a staple, even if at a luxury level in the U.S. market. However, like the majority of foodie podcasts and articles I came across while doing research for this episode, this one is decidedly focused on sustaining Quinoa's commercial appeal. It's good for getting a sense of consumer aspirations, in other words, but a welcome palate cleanser after listening was Simone Greff and Foro Kijihe's 2019 academic article, The Demand for Superfoods, Consumers' Desire, Production Viability, and Biointelligent Transition. Published in Food Tech Transitions, this piece sympathetically yet also pragmatically evaluates the consumer trends and pressing needs that are still driving investment in quinoa as one of the foods that might, quote unquote, save the world. For my part, I simply want to highlight that it's easy to shake our heads at how eager humans are to latch on to new trends in the hope of becoming more eco-friendly, more ethical, more health conscious, or just plain more, only to have these flash-in-the-pan trends later prove far more complex with respect to their long-term social and environmental impacts. We love a good trend in general, the performance of it all, the feeling of belonging it creates, but our eagerness to hop onto exciting new bandwagons gets especially complicated when what we're trying to perform is something as critical as our commitment to bettering the world. However, when we recognize that trend hopping is a pretty consistent human behavior rather than something shallow and silly that only other people do, we allow ourselves to think a little deeper about the difference between choice and agency. Choice is something we perform when picking between various grains, legumes, and pseudo-cereals at the local grocery store within whatever limits our respective budgets and nutritional needs create but agency is enacted, broadened, and deepened long before that trip down the aisles through policies and cultures established on a far larger scale. And so how we improve human agency, how we change what's available to the consumer so that fewer of their choices could be considered bad choices in the first place, well, that's the real work, isn't it? The work of finding the genuinely right answers to all that ails us in our broken world. And since there are rarely any easy answers, much as our fickle hearts cry out for them, well, let's just hope that doing the work, at least, will always remain in style. This has been Global Humanist Chop Talk Podcast Edition with M.L. Clark. New episodes launch every other Friday, First to Global Humanist Chop Talk, the column available at OnlySky, and then to other podcast distributors. Maurizio Ferras is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo. Theme music comes care of Kabbalistic Village on SoundCloud. And other background music is courtesy of Joseph McDade. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons. 
the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon, where I post a monthly newsletter, along with other updates on the full range of my writing projects. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Shop talkers, humanists, fellow travelers on this pale blue dot, wherever this episode's little mental flip finds you in your lives, please remember to be kind to yourselves, to seek justice where you can, and above all else, to keep the conversation thriving. Thank you.